We want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives, but can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now welcome your host, Jen Lumenlan. Welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Today's episode is called Becoming Brilliant. I'm so excited to welcome my guest today, Roberta Golenkoff. I reached out to her because I'd read her book, Einstein Never Used Flashcards, which advocated for young children's learning through play rather than through expensive toys or high pressure classes. Um, so when her new book, Becoming Brilliant, came out, I knew I had to read it. And I absolutely danced a jig the day that she agreed to join us here on Your Parenting Mojo. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for joining us, Roberta. You know, it's funny, but I danced the jig too. I'm so happy <laughs> to be able to talk about these issues. And it's such a pleasure to meet you, Jen. I hope I get to see you next time I'm out in California. That would be great. All right. Well, let me formally introduce you. Dr. Golinkoff is the Unidel H. Rodney Sharp Professor of Education, Psychology and Linguistics at the University of Delaware. She has won a fellowship and many prizes for her work, and she served as an associate editor of Child Development, which really is the premier journal in her field. And she's also authored over 150 journal publications, book chapters, and 14 books and monographs. Her official bio says that she has appeared on numerous radio and television shows and in print media and never turns down an opportunity to spread the findings of psychological science to the lay public. So I can vouch for her on that front, at least. Thank you again for joining us. When do I sleep? <laughs> I don't know. I wonder that, too. <laughs> Some days I wonder that. Yeah, I can imagine. So I wonder if you could start a bit by telling us about the premise of Becoming Brilliant. Why did you write this book? So we know that many parents are struggling and trying to figure out what their children should be receiving by way of schooling and by way of parenting in the home. And the reason they're struggling is because we are in a new era. You know, there has never been a time like this. Technology is advancing so rapidly. It's really changing all our lives. Many of the parents who you speak to know that um, places like the National Economic Forum have said that 47% of our jobs are going to go the way of computers and robots. Uh, the statistics are very clear that many, many jobs will be vanishing. So how do we protect our children for the future? So when we started to think about this, we knew it was going to be about education, but we didn't just want it to be about reimagining education in the classroom because we recognize that kids spend only 20% of their time in school. It seems like way so, more than that. <laughs> it does seem more than that, but it's not if you actually do the numbers on it. And that means that the kinds of activities that children engage in outside of school and at home can be crucially important for their education. Many people are not thrilled with the kind of education that their children have. And we also wanted to broaden what we think of as education because if your kid is just smart but a junky person, what good did you do, right? You want to create kids who will be happy in their personal lives and who will take the perspective of others. Otherwise, you know, how can you have partners? How can you work in the workforce if you can't get along with people? So our book actually has a mission statement. And 
we created this mission statement by modifying a mission statement from Ontario, our neighbors to the north. Mm -hmm. I love Canada. I want to be a poster child (laughs) because they get education Uh and they know how important playful learning is and they minimize the drill and kill. Mm. So our mission statement is, Society thrives when we craft environments both in and out of school that support happy, healthy, thinking, caring, and social children who become collaborative, creative, competent, and responsible citizens tomorrow. That's quite a mission. It is a big mission. It is true. And in order to fulfill this mission, it's just a good thing that Kathy and I are steeped in the psychological literature, Mm -hmm. because between us, we read and incorporated thousands of studies into this book. And while that may sound incredibly dense and boring... It's actually not, because <laughs> I read it. <laughs> you read it. Oh, yes. good. You know that we really try to write in a way that invites people into our thinking, into the laboratory, into the school, into the home, so that they can see the principles that we extract from the research visible yeah. before their eyes. Yeah, I did notice that it's really full of stories that really help oh, to get your point good, across. Good. <laughs> yeah, right. so, so let's dive into the book a little bit. Um, so the, the setup of the book is that you describe the six C's, which are right. collaboration, communication, content, critical thinking, creative innovation, and confidence. And right. each of those competencies has four levels of mastery from basic up to, you know, pretty high, um, right. the kind of level that some people never achieve in their lifetime. And That's so, yeah, yeah, so as I, I, you actually have it set out in a table format. And as I looked at the table, the, the building of the levels made immediate sense to me. But it wasn't until I got to the end of the book that I realized how you can kind of move across the table as well. And the competencies themselves build on each other and reinforce each other. Can you talk exactly. a little bit about that? Oh, that, that was a brilliant presentation of how this is presented. <laughs> um, so the idea is that the skills that we talk about emerge in development, and we try to put them in sequence by development. And in addition, there is development along each of the six Cs. So probably the way to make it clearer would be to give an example, let's say from collaboration, the first one. Think about the fact that humans are born ultra social. We we will smile to faces and lock on to eyes at birth. And yeah. this is often a startling recognition that people have when the newborn baby comes out and looks you in the eyes. It's like, oh my God, there's a little person in there. So collaboration is basically two heads are better than one. Easy to remember. And in order to collaborate and work with others, so this is our first C, we have to learn to control our emotions and take others' points of view. We also sprinkled the book with business examples because Peter Drucker, who was the father of modern management, has written about how companies today 
have to live in a Lego world where the bricks can be combined and recombined as collaborations occur inside and outside mm. the company. Yeah, yours is the first book I've ever seen that does that, that kind of looks ahead to what, what comes out the other end, <laughs> um, particularly from a business viewpoint and says, these are the kinds of skills that you're going to need. You know, you're not going to need to be able to recite the capitals of the 50 states in your, in right. your career. Um, you're going to need a whole different set of skills that is not being addressed by schools today. You know, you you really get it. I feel like you should be giving this in. <laughs> you don't get it. So it, it is absolutely true that what we did in the 20th century, in the 19th century, and unfortunately, even in some of this century, is engage children in a lot of memorization. Now, look, I'm not going to say memorization isn't important. I'm giving a test tomorrow in one of my classes. They're not going to have open book. They're going to have to memorize stuff, Okay. But unless you can make it your own, unless you can engage in deep learning so you can generate examples and you can talk about why this concept is important, you've only learned in a very shallow way. And with being able to get facts at our fingertips now on the computer, I mean, you could go ask any uh, second grader. Uh, what's the tallest building in the world? And they can tell you if they have computer access in about 13 seconds, right? So there are many things available to children today that weren't available in the past when we did rely so heavily on memorization. Now what we need to develop in our children is the ability to adapt and be flexible and be able to change because seven out of 10 jobs have not been invented yet for the future. And our children... Isn't that a weird thought? It is. It's true. (laughs) And uh, we already see all around us how um, we're being replaced by... Oh, oh, here's a great example. So I spoke at the Evolution Institute and United Way in Tampa, Florida. It was held in the building owned by Valpac. We get... These coupons, I don't know how old it's monthly, is it? Yeah, we get them in the mail too. And they produce these things. They had a community room where we had the meeting. So they had these giant windows so you could look down into the factory. I was literally blown away. I felt like, oh my God, I have seen the future. This was maybe a 200,000 square foot factory loaded with equipment. There were moving vehicles with no human in them. They were all conducted by robots. And this giant working factory had about four humans in it. I was blown away. So this is the future for which we are preparing our children. That means we have to give them the skills, help them develop the skills that robots and computers aren't so good at. So collaboration is certainly one of them. Communication is essential. It's the grease that keeps international commerce alive because now we're collaborating with people all over the world. One of my fondest expressions is the world is the size of a walnut. You know, 25 years ago even, I couldn't have had a dinner at my house with somebody on my left from Bangladesh somebody on my right from Ireland, somebody in front of me from India. I mean, it just goes on and on, right? So we have to figure out how to communicate with people from cultures all over the world. We have to learn to speak. 
We have to learn to write. And all this entails, again, taking the perspective of the other. You have to have content, no question about it. You ain't going to get away without content, okay? And there are different ways to learn content, and we would like to move away from a lot of the drill and kill that we're seeing in school because we want kids to be able to gain, retain, and use content in new ways. That's what they're going to be asked to do in life, to apply what they know to problems, And again, we don't want them replaced by those computers. Critical thinking, we can think of as question everything. You have to have some content to be able to engage in critical thinking. And you have to be able to synthesize and select the information you need from this deluge to solve the problem at hand. So I don't know about you, but I'm sitting in my office looking at my desk loaded with journals, papers, and books. And I like to tell people, this is not my fault. This is because we daily encounter the equivalent, you ready for this, of 174 newspapers. 174 newspapers. Worth of content. Per day. Yeah, wow. Is the amount of information by one estimate that we encounter. So Mm -hmm. how can I possibly keep up and keep my place neat? Yeah. (laughs) It's not my fault. Yeah. (laughs) I'll tell my husband that. (laughs) So so let's talk a little bit about how that, the content C um, applies to, to very young children. I'm, we're not quite yet there yet with our toddler. She's just a little over two. Um, But I've, I've certainly met children who are slightly older who sort of latch onto a topic and, and learn all of these kind of esoteric facts about it. Um, And, and I know, that they tend to kind of just memorize these little nuggets of information. And I'm wondering, is there any way that we can, that we can, or that we would want to kind of scaffold that knowledge into a, um, you know, a more cohesive whole, or if it's just part of being a toddler that you memorize 300 facts about dinosaurs and then you move on to fish and then you move on to something else. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a wonderful thing that our kids are so curious and it's an unfortunate thing that school tends to stamp it out of them, unless it's a certain kind of school that really encourages curiosity and questioning. So, you know, my favorite place when my kids were little was the public library. It's such a gift to go with your kids and let them pick out the books. And then if you know they're interested in spiders, you know, you take out books on spiders, right? So why not feed into the things that your kids are interested in? It doesn't mean they have to become uh, entomologists, you know, ultimately, and study spiders for a living. But if they're fascinated about something in the world, let's build on it. Why not? Right? And this is also where media can come in. Um, In today's world, even though there are many junky educational apps out there, and even though we don't want our kids on television 24-7, you know, you may well be able to find cool videos about spiders. I opened up one of my talks once with a, a little piece from the New York Times on jumping spiders who can jump like five times their body, you know, and it's just fascinating once you start to dig in. And I wouldn't worry so much about what your kid is getting out of it as long as they continue to ask questions and they want to know and you feed into this by providing them with opportunity to learn more. 
Why not? That's an interesting twist on it. So you're saying that a measure of success is not how much they know or how well it goes together, but how well they continue to ask questions. Yeah. If you know, I'm not so much worried about assaying what my kids know about dinosaurs per se. I just want to feed into their curiosity. And the more we do that, the the more they learn about the world and they learn how to learn. So in content is also included learning to learn. So if we help children know how to find the information they're interested in, you know, that starts by going to the library, maybe going online. We're already helping them for the future because they need to know how to find information. And teachable moments are everywhere. So we tell parents to take their children to really exotic places like the supermarket. (laughs) I mean, you know, what? what's more typical for, for a family? You, you go to the supermarket, you go to the pharmacy, you go to the cleaners, right? And I've always loved in the cleaners the button that you press that makes the clothes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I bet that would be every toddler's you know, kid push field day. <laughs> so this is how we help our kids learn about the world. We ask them questions and they ask us questions. And it's not like giving a test. It's like open-ended questions where you talk about things. So for example, say you see an eggplant for the first time in the supermarket, you can tap into all the seas. You can say, um, this is one of the only purple vegetables. You know, why don't you feel it? It's so smooth. It's like amazing how it feels on the outside. Should we buy it? Should we take it home and cook and make something with it? You know, you get you get all excited about an eggplant, right? And this is what it's like if you're excited about taking your child out in the world. You can just share these little tidbits with them. And then if you actually take it home and make something with them, they're not only learning content about the category of vegetables, but they're learning to collaborate with you. They're learning about communication because they're asking you questions and having a conversation with you. And all these things come together in creating children who are curious and who want to know more and who take the perspective of others It's like no big secret here. Yeah. Well, in a way, that kind of is the secret in my (laughs) mind. Because I I mean, when when my toddler started getting a little bit older, I started to set up all these learning activities for her. And, you know, what am I I missing out on by not doing a learning activity today? And, And it's through reading books like yours that I realize... That going to the grocery store is a learning activity. You know, when, when you're looking at your, um, your collaboration see, you're talking about things like stacking firewood together and unpacking groceries together right. because those kinds of activities build collaboration. You know, can you pass me the grapes or whatever? Where, where do these go? Could you put those away for me, please? And so I, I really appreciate just the, the understanding that I can bring my toddler along just by going through my daily life that right. I don't have to set up learning activities no. for her yeah, and, unless I want to, or unless she wants to, or, you know, there, there's something, yeah. something outside of that, but I, I don't have to. I'm so happy you saying this, Jen, because sometimes I think, um, that I've been steeped in this stuff for so long that I, that I need to hear you. I need to hear you. <laughs> You feel the pressure to set up learning your right. yeah. child who is just two. Yeah. And I think 
It's a shame. And that's why we wrote Einstein Never Used Flashcards. Too. I love that book. <laughs> Thank you so much. Because we wanted to tell parents also at that time that they didn't have to fall prey to the marketplace, right. telling them that they had to buy. At the time, it was only fancy electronic toys. Now is, do I need to get my kid a tablet? Right? Yeah, yeah. So the ante <laughs> keeps being upped, and the marketplace, unfortunately, rules. Mm-hmm. Because many people like yourself and myself in other areas are influenced by what the marketplace tells me I need. And if we can take a step back and say, you know, we don't necessarily need to buy this fancy stuff and she doesn't need to have a workbook. If she asks how to write her name, which she will organically, if we put letters on the refrigerator and she sees us writing and we say, look at the letters in your name, I'm putting them together. You're there. You don't have to do drill and kill when your kid is little. This brings me to preschool tutoring. I hope you haven't considered that. <laughs> we have not considered that, no. <laughs> Yay. Actually, companies making a ton of money engaging in preschool tutoring. And what are they tutoring for? What's the purpose oh, of the tutoring? And breeding and, you know, very drill and kill kind of stuff. The pencils are bigger than the kids. And no child needs preschool tutoring if you're taking your child to exciting places supermarket zoo etc and if you're having conversations with your child back and forth thinks drive for five what is that i'll never forget it because it rhymes strive for five was uh, made up by my friend david dickinson with whom we collaborated vanderbilt and it's the idea that uh, I say something, then you say something, then I say something, then you say. So we have five back and forth. We know we're having a real conversation when we have five back and forth. Many conversations between parents and children are quite brief because, you know, we try to offer our children choices. So we say, do you want to wear the red pants or the blue pants, right? But if we ask more open-ended questions like, what do you think? Is today a pants day? Or do you think it's warm enough to wear shorts or, you know, like you try to get more going, then you can get more back and forth as opposed to yes, no type questions. Yeah, I, I appreciate what you're saying. I wonder, I'm, I'm just imagining getting my toddler ready and out the door in the morning. Um, it sounds like that could be a slower way of getting dressed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of parents of toddlers do this the night before. Yeah, I have heard that. <laughs> yeah, because you all know how difficult it is to get toddlers out because they have their own agenda yeah. and they don't feel the sense of urgency that we feel. Right. So many people, um, like I, I don't think I did this, actually. I can't remember what it was like. I'm sure my little boy couldn't have cared less what he wore. <laughs> and if anything, I had these conversations with my daughter. Mm -hmm. But if you set it up the night before, if you have trouble getting your kid out, yeah. do yeah. yourself a big favor, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So, um, talking about the, the conversational turns reminds me of the, the 30 million word gap, uh, right. that's seen a lot of press. The idea that, uh, right. children from high income families have been exposed to about 30 million more words than children right. from low income families. And I saw it in different places. It's by the time, by the time the child, child is three or four. I'm not sure yes. which one's right. Yeah. You, th you think there's more to it than that. You think that there, the, uh, the quantity of language is not the only factor involved. Right. So the people who listen to your podcast, Jen, are likely uh, speaking with their children and having conversations, which is great. 
because it's not just the number of words that are addressed to children that matters, and we have the research now to prove it. So we conducted a study where we wanted to see among all lower-class kids, 60 lower-class kids, who divided up into three groups, high language, middle language, low language. We wanted to see how their parents interacted with them going back in time when they were two. And we found that the children who landed in the high language group at three were the ones who at two had parents who built on what their child said, who conducted fluent conversations with them, who didn't try to redirect the child's interests, but build on what the kid was interested in. And we found that the quality of the communicative exchange mattered more for where children landed in each of these language levels than the quantity, the number of words that passed children's ears. That came in very clearly. So what does that mean? Do parents have to like think every time they open their mouth with their kids. No, <laughs> have fun with your kids. Talk with your kids. Explain things. Respond to their queries. Answer them and ask them what else they want to know. You know, it doesn't mean you have to um, take a course in how to speak to your child or get a PhD in English. By no means, you know, tell little stories. Uh, kids love to hear about what you did when you were a kid. Your child, Jen, might not be old enough for that yet. Not quite. They love to hear about how you played in your backyard and how you walked to the library. And I mention these things because these are just the kinds of things that I talk to my own kids about. And they would ask for these stories over and over again. So you don't have to get a PhD in English. You just tell the stories of your own lives, you know, and just respond to them, read to them. So reading is really key for language because we know that it's not the number of books a child hears, but the conversations around the books. So how do you have a conversation around a book? How does that work? So when a child, you're reading a book about, you know, a family and there's a dog in the picture and the kid points to the dog, even before your kid can talk, you could say, you're right. That dog looks like Nana's dog. <laughs> it does. You've seen a dog like that, mm -hmm. right? So when we read to kids, what we want to do is follow the little pointing finger. We don't just want to read books to read books. It should be cuddling up and fun and lead to conversation and back and forth. I mean, people often feel like their goal is they've got to finish the book. They've got to get to the next book especially because we're all so busy. No, <laughs> think book as platform. Mm. Book as platform. And Let's have fun. And when you say follow the pointing finger, you don't mean the, the parent's pointing finger, right? I assume you mean the child's pointing finger. Yeah. yeah. So, what, so what you're asking us to do is to follow what the child is interested in and spend exactly. time on that. And that's what always wins, right? Mm. Yeah, that's really hard for me. I, I, I kind of need to finish the book. <laughs> 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 That's about us, not them, right? Yeah, it is. It is. So, you know, um, if you tell your child to uh, not interrupt because you want to keep going, then your kid is getting the wrong message because you want to help the kid learn that books are remarkably informative and remarkably 
fun. You want your kid to love learning. So Not something speak, to be sat through. <laughs> that's exactly right. So I okay. speak all over the world and I say, reading is not the time to teach your kids manners. This is not the time to say, don't interrupt. This is the time to follow the kid's lead. That's how your kid is going to learn new words. That's how your kid is going to learn new sentence structures. And that's how your kid is going to learn new content. So, for example, books use sentence structures that we don't use in real life. So if you ever talk to a three-year-old and the kid goes, and poof, he disappeared. You know that kid is being read to a lot because nobody talks like that, right? So books are remarkably important for growing children's vocabulary, for growing children's interests, for growing children's sentence structures, and for helping them learn about the structure of stories. So, of course, you're going to finish the book most of the time because they're going to want to hear the conclusion because they, they know that a story will have a beginning, a problem, and then a resolution. And when kids know that, they'll do better in school. Because a lot of what happens in school is based on that narrative structure. Interesting. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a bit about confidence. Sure. Um, and in the book, you cite Angela Duckworth's grit scale, which yeah. measures the amount of kind of stick with itness that people have. And I actually went and took the grit scale test <laughs> on our website. And you mentioned that research has found that the grit scale was better at predicting which cadets would drop out of West Point than the military's own test to predict which Isn't cadets drop out of West Point. Um, and so, yeah, I, there's a link in the references to where people can go and take this test if they want to. And I'm just wondering your thoughts as to, I don't know if you have any thoughts on how we can improve our own grit, but how we can encourage our children to develop grit that leads to the confidence of the, the six C's. So um, I don't know about you, but every now and then I can't do something and I get crazy. Yeah. Every you know, once in a while. Like Ten well, tennis is like that for me. What is like that? Tennis. tennis. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, something you're trying to do with your computer, right? Yeah. It's yeah. making you nuts, right? Yeah. So if your children see you freak out, you know, you might want to modify it just a little bit. You can have a mini freak out, but as long as you keep working on the problem, you're modeling perseverance and grit for them. And it's different than if you freak out, walk away, and then don't come back to it. You know, you really want to show your kids that you can take on difficult problems and stick with it. And... You want to be in the face of children's failures or your own failures. You want to view them as opportunities for learning. So when a kid comes home, for example, and they didn't do well on a test, this is older than your kid's age, Jen. When a kid comes home and they didn't do well and they're not happy about it and you say to them, go to your room, I mean, no, that that doesn't get you anywhere because it doesn't help the child examine what it was they did, and how they could operate differently. So if we view failures as an opportunity to learn, we could say to the kid, you know, what do you think happened? Why did you do so poorly on the spelling test? And the kid could say, well, I didn't get the words. And you could say, well, why didn't you get the words? And the kid could say, well, I was sick. So then you say, okay, so let's get telephone numbers of kids in the class so we can call people when you're sick to pick up you know, the assignments. Or if the kid says, you know, I knew that there was going to be a test, but I didn't do it. You say to the kid, did you study? Right? The kid says, what's that? Right? 
Now it's true. A lot of little kids don't know that you have to review and rehearse and study. So this is where parents come in. I remember my uh, son was in the fifth grade. He said, they gave me this list of stuff to memorize. I said, what do I do? (laughs) So you're talking a little older than toddlers here then. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. But if you talk to kids about the fact that they didn't study, they may not know what study requires. They may not know how to memorize stuff. If you can help them, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, Many schools don't teach study techniques. So if you can help kids how to learn what they need to know, you're helping them in two ways. You're helping them with that immediate goal of learning that information. And you're also helping them with the idea that, yeah, there are things I can do to help me learn stuff. So that's where parents really come in handy. I always tell parents, don't do your kids' homework. That gives really bad message. It's like, I can't trust you to do it. I'm going to do it, right? And it says more about the parents' own anxiety about getting things right. Yeah, which, right? which actually brings me to something else I want to ask you about um, yeah, the, yeah. your views on praise and rewards, because <laughs> that often comes up in the subject of um, school and tests and, and things like that. So you, you cite Daniel Pink's book, uh, Drive, because he argued that, and I'm going to quote, the ability to learn and create new things and improve our world is the motivation that really matters, and that comes from the inside. Um, but in several places in the book, you describe some very interesting sorry, extrinsic motivators. So for example, that Jack and Larry will work together to put the blocks away because they enjoy pleasing the teacher um, and encouraging sharing by saying, wow, you are such a good sharer. Um, but you also cite Carol Dweck's work on how praise can make yeah. children less willing to try new things. And I'm sure you know Alfie Cohen's work, who's a, a, a big favorite of mine. Um, I wonder if you can help us to reconcile those two kind of what seem to me as fairly opposing perspectives. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that you raise this because we all respect respond to all kinds of praise and comment on our work. We're all very sensitive about how other people view what we do. It just goes on throughout life. Carol Dweck's work speaks specifically to the creation of a growth mindset. So there are two ways to view intelligence. One way is that you view it as a fixed entity. I had one child like this. You view it as a fixed entity, and the minute you can't do something, you say, oh, I'm not good at that, okay? Or you view intelligence and the brain as a muscle that gets better with exercise. I had one of those, too. (laughs) So we want our children to think that there isn't really anything that they can't master if they put their mind to it. That's a growth mindset. We don't want our kids throwing up their hands and saying, I can't do this because I'm not good at it. So how do we make that happen? So we don't want to tell our children how smart they are because when we tell our children how smart they are, They often won't try difficult tasks. This is Dweck's own work. They won't try difficult tasks because they're worried about losing face. Ooh, you said I was so smart. I better not try that. What if I can't do it? I'll look like a dummy, right? So that's why we want to praise our children's effort. And we want to say things like, oh, uh, you worked so hard at that. I'm really proud of how hard you worked. And I see that you didn't do it right at first, but you persevered, you hung in there. That's great, right? But we also can recognize that we sometimes do things for other 
people. Like mm-hmm. I like when my husband tells me, you know, I cooked a nice dinner, which I don't do often. <laughs> there better be praise involved in that. <laughs> right, which I don't do often, right. So, um, you know, we can have a little bit of both. And I would want my children to want to please their teachers because most of the teachers they're going to have will be reasonable humans who have my children's interests at heart. So, in fact, you know, sometimes kids don't care if they please humans and then they have serious issues. So that's, you know, like if you go off the the end of the spectrum there, you have kids who really don't care about what the people they love think. That's a problem. So we want our kids to want to please the people who are caring about them and taking care of them. But that doesn't mean that we have to praise everything that the kid does uh, or that we can't recognize that much of what children do, they do because it's for them. It's for them on the inside and not for us on the outside. So the only thing that I would caution is not telling kids how smart they are all the time because I don't want to make them feel frozen and like they can't take on new difficult tasks. And I again, I would want to have us talk with children all the time when things aren't going their way, even interpersonally, you know. What can you do differently to get Sally to like you? And maybe it won't work because, you know, there are some people I don't like that I'll never like, you know. But these are the kinds of things that if we work over with kids and talk about these things and encourage them not to give up, it's going to have long-term benefit for our children. Sure. I, I'd like to draw us to a conclusion here by talking about something that's really been on my mind a lot lately, uh, which is the state of education in the U.S. Yes. Um, you mentioned already the the uh, projection from the National Center on Education and Economy that said that American classrooms are preparing children for the workforce of 1953. <laughs> and that the whole premise of the book is to um, understand how some of our parenting practices, as well as our classrooms, are failing to prepare our children for the workplace or even, even the work of the future. So I'm wondering if if you had a six-year-old today and, you know, time and resources weren't an issue just to kind of get that out of the way, would you send him or her to school or would you consider alternate forms of education? Um, I guess what I'm ultimately trying to ask is, do you think there's hope for American schools? I do. I think that there are uh, many classrooms with teachers who are extremely committed to their children and who want to do best by them. And what this means is the parent has to be an advocate. I don't care if you have your kid in a private school, if you have your kid in a public school, you got to be your kid's advocate. And you got to do the research. So I have a six-year-old grandchild who is just with us, for example. And his moms, it's two moms, did research about who the parents in the grade considered to be among the best teachers and why. And they then requested, and many times parents can make these requests, for this particular teacher who they thought would go well with their child's uh, disposition and temperament. So I think there, there are definitely uh, possibilities in today's schools. And I think if you're a member of a parent-teacher association and if you continue to Read, just like you said before, Jen, that parents have discovered that the books that they read about 
having babies and then infants aren't sufficient to keep them going once their kids get into school. So, you know, if they um, read a book like ours and Einstein never used flashcards, it will help them to try to influence what goes on in their child's school. Too. Now, I'm, I'm not going to be unrealistic about this because uh, turning the ship of education in some cases is like turning a giant ocean liner. It takes forever. And so short of, you know, asking your kid's class to be changed, that's another possibility. Remember, you got to be a kid's advocate. Um, there are so many things that you can do at home, even while you're incredibly busy, that can help your child develop the six C's, the skills that they're going to need for the future. And what that's about is incorporating your children and what you're doing and making it fun and pleasant. Now, I got to say, I got to back off here one second to make sure that people know that what I'm talking about is absolutely crucial and will reduce their own level of stress. When we don't include our kids in what we do, and we're just like racing around, got to get this done, we're feeling stress. And if we could figure out how to incorporate our kids a little bit into what we do and make it fun, our stress level would go down too. So Kathy and I use the term manic compression, where we feel like we have to get everything in. I felt like that when my kids were little. I really did. And it's not a great way to feel, you know. So if you can get your kids helping you, so what if they don't fold the towels so well? You know, you put them on the floor, big deal. You show them how to fold them, right? So what if they don't set the table exactly like you like? When they're setting the table, they're practicing one-to-one correspondence and math. You know, all these little things that you can do with them if you're not too critical Please don't be too critical. It makes it harder on you. If you're not too critical, you know, can really increase the bond that you feel with your child and your child is just learning, learning, learning as they're interacting with you. Thank you so much for your time, today, Roberta. I really, really appreciate your uh, taking the time to explain your thoughts about the book to us. Jen, I'll talk to you anytime. (laughs) Thank you. So I'd like to remind listeners that the references for today's episode are on yourparentingmojo.com. You can search for Becoming Brilliant and the book Becoming Brilliant, which Roberta co-authored with Kathy Hirsch-Pasek, who was due to join us today, but unfortunately had some uh, technical difficulties and was unable to, to speak with us, is available for purchase in your local bookstores or on Amazon if you must. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. And sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift, seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.